Welcome to season three of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes, Building Up the Nerve, where we help you strengthen your mentoring relationships with tools and advice from both trainees and faculty. We know that navigating your career can be daunting, but we're here to help. It's our job. I'm Lauren Ulrich, a program director at NINDS. And I'm Marguerite Matthews, a program director at NINDS, and we're your hosts today. This episode will focus on adaptive and resilient mentoring. And while this is an evergreen topic, the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic has really tested the limits of some of our mentoring relationships. Um, the pandemic is its own challenge, of course, but it has also exacerbated other challenges like finding proper childcare, addressing health concerns, accessibility for individuals with disabilities, and many more. And one of the things we want to talk about with this episode is how can mentors and mentees successfully navigate these challenges? All right, let's get to our guest today, Dr. Theanne Griffith. Dr. Sarah Casinas, and Dr. Ray Lee Robison. Hello, everybody. My name is Theanne Griffith. I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis, in the Department of Physiology and Membrane Biology. My lab is broadly interested in somatosensation and the ion channels that transmit somatosensory signals, such as pain, proprioception, and temperature in both health and disease. And we really use a complement of techniques that span ion channel biophysics to animal behavior. If I could describe my mentoring style in three words, I would say open, approachable, and accepting. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Casinas. I'm a full professor of biology at the University of Virginia, and my lab is very broadly interested in how you build a nervous system. And we particularly focus on the role of glial cells and how glioglial interactions help sculpt the nervous system during development and then also after disease or injury when you're trying to regrow portions of your nervous system. If I were to describe my mentoring style in three words, I would say role model champion and cheerleader. Hello, my name is Rayleigh Robeson. I'm a current postdoctoral fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, if I would describe my research, it would really be nutritional homeostasis and functional reserves and how swallowing problems or dysphagia interrupts our ability to eat and hydrate properly. And I'm specifically right now focused on this theme in frail older adults and patients with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Although I haven't done a lot of mentoring, so I'm kind of coming at this from the mentee perspective and something that I would really value in a mentor is someone who's an advocate, someone who's a listener, and again, someone who's just a cheerleader for you. I think we may have enough to start a cheerleading squad. There's a lot of cheerleaders here. I love it. I know. All I'm thinking, though, is a really competitive cheerleading where everyone's like going up in pyramids and stuff. And I don't think my body could handle that. So <laughs> we need to do the old fashioned style. <laughs> you you can be the bottom of the pyramid. That's just as important. You got to have a solid foundation to be able to flip people up in the air. That's true. When you have been a mentee or if you're currently a mentee, are you or have you been comfortable with telling your mentor or mentors about the specific types of support you need? And why or why not? Like, What can a mentor do to make that kind of request more or less comfortable? Well, I'll get started with this one. And just for a little bit of context, I am a person that has two pretty serious um, 
illnesses that I got diagnosed with when I was going through my PhD program. So I feel like going through the situation where I turned from being a researcher and student as my primary identity to then being a patient as my primary identity required a lot of transparency and vulnerability on my part. I think something that my mentor did that was really great was that she was very open and receptive to this type of transition and kind of taking a backseat and letting me lead in that kind of situation, which built up a level of trust that I think we really needed for that transparency and vulnerability to be there. And I think beyond that, the trust really extended to this idea that I knew that if I gave her information, it wouldn't be used against me in a retaliatory way, in a way that would harm me, um, and that she wouldn't take anything I was telling her and spread it to people that didn't need to know about it, it, or she would really just use that to help advocate for me. um, And really just, again, just champion me, cheerlead me on and support me in that way. So I think just knowing that there was that baseline trust there really helped afford that relationship where we could be very open and transparent about the things that were going on with me. Can I ask how you knew that about her? Is that something you were looking for when you were choosing her as a mentor? I mean, as you mentioned, this is something that developed after you already started graduate school. So what was it about her that let you know I can trust her? Yeah, so I think it was something I learned after I started working with her. I worked with her for a a pretty long period of time. I started working with her when I was a master's student. And by the time I got sick, this was about like four or five years into our relationship. But I will say... All the projects, papers that we had worked on prior to that, you know, I think there are times when we as mentees question what our mentors are doing. We're like, we don't know. Like, they're just saying this and they're just making me do all this extra work. But at the end of the day, everything that she told me to do, told me to invest my time in had always been for my best interest. So I think that's what really built up that trust was that she had never led me astray with any type of project we had done, any sort of paper, any sort of collaboration she brought me into. So I felt like I could trust her with those small things. So then I could trust her with this really big thing that was happening to me. Yeah, I can add a little bit on to that. Um, When I was a graduate student, right before I started my PhD program, my mother was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. And so I went into grad school with kind of a lot on my shoulders. And when I was searching for a graduate lab, I already kind of knew that information. And it was very important for me that the lab that I was going to join knew that I had things going on in the background that could potentially affect my productivity, that could potentially affect the amount of time that I was going to be spending in lab. You know, my mother was in Maryland. I was at Northwestern in Chicago. So I was flying out on a monthly basis. So I had, you know, half day Fridays once a month and having that laid out at the very beginning. And I was very open about that with my PI and he was very um, understanding, very, very understanding. And that was a huge part of the reason why I joined his lab. It, It was a very much of a family kind of style environment. His wife was our lab manager, you know, and, and so it just had that, um, that feel to it. And, and it was really, really important to be able to convey to him, you know, all of the things that were going on in my background without necessarily diving into the deep, deep details. But having that open line of communication was really um, helpful for me and I think really shaped how I decide to mentor the people in my lab now. So given your experiences with your own mentors, how do you help a trainee through a situation that maybe you've never experienced before or aren't sure about how maybe to approach it because you yourself haven't um, experienced it? 
I think that's a fantastic question. The thing that I learned very quickly when I started my lab is that most of the things that my trainees are going through, I have personally never experienced. And and that's because each um, scientist that comes through my lab comes from a different background with different perspectives and different life experiences. And I very quickly realized that it's not my job to necessarily fix things for them. What I do is I try to create a safe space where there's no judgment, that things are confidential, and I let them speak. Oftentimes, just speaking to somebody that they feel is listening is a huge step and then being able to kind of wrap their head around whatever the situation is that they're going through. If uh, the relationship is built strong enough, meaning we've been together longer than a couple weeks, <laughs> you know, I ask, can I help you find resources, right? Especially if it's something that I've not experienced. I'll say, do you mind if I speak confidentially with someone? Or would you like me to reach out to a colleague that I think might be very helpful? And, and so I very quickly kind of let them know that I'm not their only resource, that I, I am grateful that they trust me to come speak to me, but that they can trust me to help them find someone else or a resource or an infrastructure at the university that might be helpful to them. And through working through their situations, whatever it may be, I also grow. And I let them know that as well, that by them sharing with me, it's helping me be a better mentor for them, but also future you know, trainees that come through the lab. I can just add on and say that I think you made like a really important point about saying that you kind of let them talk to you and you kind of provide space for them to tell you what they need to tell you with your goal, not to solve their problems, but to help them. And I think that's a really important transition that I'm trying to learn as a new PI, right? Because I'm used to being in more of like a colleague role, like a peer role. And now I'm not. <laughs> now I'm kind of the head of the lab. And while I'd love to interact in the way that I used to, maybe when I was a postdoc with the people in the lab, I can't. It's not quite the same dynamic. I'm actually taking notes <laughs> and will plan to incorporate, you know, that idea as I move forward, because those transitions are not always, you know, evident, especially for us new PIs coming from a postdoc role, when sometimes it takes us a bit to make that mental leap of where we stand in relation to the people um, in our lab and our responsibilities in that role. Yeah, I think your point about not trying to fix a situation was really important. Um, it can be really frustrating. Again, my perspective, just somebody that lives with chronic illness slash disability, Everyone always wanted to give solutions like, oh, have you tried yoga? Have you tried eating better? You know, and it was like, that's not what I needed. I had my doctors and my team and myself, you know, and, and I knew the types of things that I needed. So what was more effective for me during that time and, and other situations that I faced as well was when my mentor just directly asked me, how can I support you? What do you need from me? Um, and that was just a, a much better way to approach the situation where I was kind of put into the driver's seat and saying, as a person living in this body with these types of limitations now, this is what I need you to do for me to accommodate me and make this the best situation um, as possible. So I think just approaching it from this idea of we can't always fix these things. I still have, you know, my illnesses, so they didn't go away. But she supported me through the process and was able to provide the necessary accommodations and support to help me reach my goals. Yeah, I think this is really good advice, even if you have had a similar situation, right? Because what you experience may be different from what your mentee actually needs, or maybe they just want you to hear them and they don't want you to fix it. They just want you to <laughs> support them through it. Um, so I, I really like the idea of allowing a person to, to decide how they want to be helped if they know, and maybe they don't know, and then you can maybe put a little bit more pressure there and help guide them. Um, but I really appreciate those perspectives. 
one important thing I've also learned after having these kinds of conversations with trainees and, and scientists in the lab is tell them, you know, I'm here uh, and I might ask how you're doing, but please tell me if you would like me to not talk about it anymore. Like I leave the door open to make sure that they know that if I, you know, stop asking about it, it's not because I don't care. It's because I am respecting whatever boundary they would like, because sometimes it's a single interaction, which is perfect if I can give them the space, but sometimes they want that repeated interaction. And so I also leave the space for them to tell me, would they like this to become part of kind of a regular mentoring experience? Or was this more of a short-term interaction that they'll come back to me if they would like more feedback? And so I, I make sure that they also know that the conversations moving forward are up to them and their comfort level. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think sometimes trainees are really um, reticent to approach mentors with the challenges that they're facing, especially if they're more in the personal space. Um, and so are there any ways that you found to be productive when you think maybe something's going on, but the trainee hasn't approached you, um, but you want to, you know, be there to support them or just let them know that you're there? Like, what are the strategies that you use in, in that kind of situation? My first approach when letting trainees, mentees in the lab know that they can come to me with anything is, well, some of it's heavy handed where I'll tell them, <laughs> I am completely open to anything you want to share with me. Um, and sometimes that doesn't work. So one of the ways where I try to just facilitate a relationship that goes beyond the office, because sometimes they come into the office and the interaction is very different. I'll ask people how their weekends were, you know, kind of superficially, or I'll tell them what I did over a weekend or the vacation my family took over the holidays, just to kind of let them know that I also view them as a colleague and a friend in a sense, and that I feel comfortable sharing with them and that I want them to feel comfortable sharing with me. I never push it past that, but I think students and postdocs in the lab have appreciated that I acknowledge that they have a life outside of lab and that kind of letting them know that I'm interested that they're at least happy and healthy in their emotional state. And that has helped them feel like they can come to me maybe a little bit more personally when they know that I care about things, again, outside of the lab bench. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to talk a little bit about an experience that actually happened to me um, over the summer. And there was an undergraduate student in the lab um, who was, you know, doing great and working well. And then all of a sudden, I just noticed that she was becoming just less responsive, you know, like not coming in when she said she would, you know, not analyzing data uh, in a timely fashion. And, you know, she had been wonderful in the lab. So I was pretty sure that there was something going on in the background, but I assumed that it was school related, that she was just a little bit overwhelmed with her classes and was just having to leave the research aside. And so I had to have a conversation with her asking her, you know, why don't you just focus on your classes for the moment? And then maybe in a couple months, come back to lab when you're ready. And then when she, she did that, you know, it was a kind of a tough conversation. Um, but when she came back, she then revealed to me some things that were going on in the background that were impacting her very severely. And I kind of wish that I would have, uh, I, I'm not sure what I wish, actually. I don't know if I wish that I would have known about that sooner or if I could have facilitated her acknowledging this to me, or maybe she just needed that time away in order to be able to talk about that situation. And I, I just say this to highlight how tricky it can be. You know, that it's hard when you see somebody whose performance changes 
and you would try and ask them, you know, how you can support them. Um, sometimes time is just what people need. And sometimes a little bit of space is also what people need. I'm looking back, I wish I would have known sooner, but maybe I actually didn't need to know sooner. And, and you know, now she's back and she's hit the ground running and, and she's being really successful in the lab at the moment. So I just wanted to highlight that experience as it's often not black and white and there's often not a... a you know, easy and fast way to always hit the nail on the head when it comes to mentorship. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so important. Like Marguerite, like you were saying earlier about everyone is different. And even if we are going through the exact same thing, like we're going to have really different needs and some people really want to talk about it. And some people don't want to talk about it at all. And it's a constant negotiation. Even people you've been friends with for 30 years, like you can still make mistakes and missteps and you know them so intimately that that's a really, really important point of it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to work through it together as long as that foundation of trust is there. And we know that each person is sort of coming from a good place. It's a lot easier to work through those kinds of issues as long as that's there. So I think from a mentee perspective, I think part of the hesitation at times with approaching mentors or anybody in a position of kind of power over you is that there's something about academia, it's like a pressure cooker, right? It's a very high pressure situation where you have to constantly be meeting these milestones. And so I think it it comes from this place that assumes a lot of wellness of the person that's supposed to be undertaking these different types of tasks. So I remember when I was going through my sickness, and I also know friends and myself that we've struggled with mental health issues at times as well. But you feel this pressure of like, I always have to show up and I have to be 100% and I have to publish this paper and get this done. And so it can be really hard when you feel like people have these expectations of you to feel like you're letting them down in that way, that you're not going to be able to get that paper or run that experiment or whatever it might be. So I think what was helpful for me was when my mentor kind of let me off the hook a little bit. And she was like, you know, it doesn't matter to me if it takes you eight years to graduate, like you're going to graduate, we'll figure it out. You just might need a little bit of time, you know. So I think just any ways that you can kind of take some of that pressure off and some of those expectations is really helpful because from a mentee perspective, we're just kind of in this state where we want to please and do things for other people and not really take care of ourselves sometimes during that process. I just wanted to quickly say that's really helpful to remember and to think about. And it's something that I've noticed as a new PI. I kind of almost already forgot. It's it's impressive how quickly <laughs> you can forget these things. But I've almost already forgot that feeling of pressure. Like I have my own pressure right now, but I really try and keep the environment very kind of exciting so that people don't feel the pressure, but they feel more like enthusiasm. But I actually do see this a lot in the lab, how much they stress over certain things like their qualifying exams or, you know, thesis committees. And looking back, I'm like, oh, don't even worry about that. So what if you fail it? Take the call again. It doesn't matter. It's not on your record. But I forget about that pressure that they're feeling. And I have a fairly intense personality. And so that's something that I'm constantly trying to work out and check, you know, am I pushing too much in the wrong moment? Because for me, it's just enthusiasm. It's excitement. It's like, let's go get this day you know, let's go publish this paper. But I realize, and thank you for reminding me too, that that really is a pressure and that needs to be alleviated as best as possible when possible. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think since I've been doing this for a few years, what I've realized that's so important is to also show that 
I feel pressures and I don't succeed all the time and and I'm human and I'm a mother and I run to get the school bus, right? And just, again, it's a different set of pressures. I completely agree, but that we're all human and we're all in this pressure cooker and that while, you know, I am the PI of the lab, that I am just as susceptible for bad days and, and just letting them know that it's okay to be human <laughs> in this space. And I think that's something even broader conversation we need to be talking about, right? That to raise you know, and champion our best mentees to be successful is to tell them that to be human is most important, right? And that's where they're going to find their success. So Sarah, you mentioned before about how you create a space to open communication by saying, asking uh, people in your lab how their weekend was or sharing a bit about your weekend. Are there any other specific strategies that you know that have worked in helping sort of build communication and trust with your mentees, but also allow there to be a level of professionalism and perhaps not have, you know, your trainees just sharing all the drama of their life with you. Like, I'm your friend, but I'm not your friend. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't have an answer. So maybe, maybe Deanne or someone else has an answer. But I can, you know, for me, I find if I share a little bit of myself and share the level that I'm comfortable with, meaning not super personal, but you know, as a mother, right? I started my lab um, 13 years ago, and it just so happened that myself and one of my first graduate students were pregnant at the same time. And so <laughs> that was a trip, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lab was like, wow, that's a lot of pregnant lady. But it was sharing what I went through. And now I share being a mother and juggling all of these things. And that's allowed both men and women in my lab to feel comfortable talking about parenting, right? So I found that if I show that line of what I'm comfortable with, those that are comfortable will come to that same line. Um, when I have had a couple students come to me with things that are maybe beyond the line that I didn't imagine would, would occur, I again, try to create the safe space. I listen, I don't cut them off, I don't judge them. But what I'll say is, this is definitely outside my wheelhouse. How can I help you find the resources that'll help you with these decisions? Or, you know, so I try not to, again, create any sort of judgment but kind of just reinstate that, wow, this might not be the best place for this conversation. Where can we get you the space where you find that this will be most helpful? I want them to know that my level of respect and trust for them is that they could call me at any moment. And if they needed something because they don't have family around, I am there. I will pick up the cell phone and I will drive to Dulles if they can't get on their flight. Oh, that's commitment. You know, that is a that is a serious commitment to say you'll go to Dulles. To fix- <laughs> but I want them to know that there's a professional line, but also I care again about them as humans and that in the absence of anybody else, if there's an emergency, I'm here. So that's, that's a long answer to say the line is fuzzy and I'm still trying to find it, but I want them to know that I care about them as people. And sometimes that means we don't talk about science in our meetings. Sometimes it has to be something else because that helps them do better science or be a better scientist just by having that ability to talk. Yeah, I really agree with that. And in terms of, you know, uh, the PI sharing to kind of set the the tone. I think that's a really great strategy and that's what I do as well. And it kind of is this idea of like, like you lead from the top, like how you behave as a PI is going to very much influence how the others behave. And so I too am a mother of two very small children, both under five at the moment. And so I'm very open about, you know, yep, got to leave. It's daycare pickup time. Wish I could stay past 4.30, but usually I can't. 
um, oh man, I'm really tired today. My brain's not working because so-and-so was sick. And, you know, I just, I really do try and keep those lines of communication open. And again, just to echo what you said, Sarah, I share what I'm comfortable with. And that usually kind of sets the tone of like, what are the kind of personal things that we can talk about? And I do always try and keep everything kind of tied back to the lab. So I like to discuss things that are personal as they pertain to our work as a group you know, um, because there is, as you said, the line is fuzzy between professional and personal in these kind of settings where it's more of an apprentice style relationship as opposed to the strict pyramid hierarchy. It's kind of a shallow hierarchy. And so far I haven't had, you know, any issues where something has been like, oh, we shouldn't really be talking about this. (laughs) But um, I'm sure that that's bound to happen. That's just a matter of time. And I've only been at this for a year and a half. Right. Um, But I definitely really like the kind of motto of you lead from the top. You set the kind of expectations about, you know, what is um, acceptable conversation. But again, also definitely providing this safe space where people can come to you with things that might be outside of your wheelhouse, but that are for a reason. Right. Because like they need to talk to somebody about this very big and important thing and then finding the resources for them to get whatever it is that they need that I might not be able to provide um, in my capacity as their PI. I completely agree that the tone needs to be set from the mentor's perspective. I will also say from a mentee perspective that figure out in those people that are oversharing, perhaps where that's coming from. I had a situation where somebody um, in a lab that I worked in one time was just kind of a very much an oversharer at very inappropriate times. And so I ended up having a lunch with this individual just to kind of see what was going on. Um, And when I talked to this person, they were just saying about how they were in this new environment where they didn't have any family or friends around. And so it kind of had this light bulb moment. I was like, oh, we're her only friends here. You know, and like, that's why she's telling us everything because she has no outlet or anything like that. And so, you know, we were able to have that conversation and talk about like, you know, what you're doing in the context of these meetings is inappropriate. But if you need support in a friendship way, like we can we can talk about that, we can get you plugged into different communities on campus or whatever it might be. And so there might be some clues in the types of things that people are oversharing as well. But I agree that the line is just very blurry at times. And for our last question, we wanted to talk about virtual mentoring or telementoring, which it has been happening for many years. But now with COVID, we're seeing a huge rise in people using Skype, or it's more acceptable to have a mentoring committee that includes people from all across the US or even internationally. And are there any differences with that kind of relationship where you don't get to be in person often, or maybe even at all? And how do you navigate those differences? I can just say quickly that I started my lab kind of during the middle of the pandemic. And while UC Davis had restrictions on the number of people that could be in the lab, but because I was just starting and I only had like one or two people, I haven't really had to navigate virtual mentoring because I was able to have my folks in the lab. I can say that you know, I love being on Zoom and being able to kind of quickly meet with people in a way that I think we weren't doing pre-pandemic. But I think it would be very challenging for me to effectively 
mentor for a long period of time virtually. I don't do very well with virtual engagement. It's really hard for me to stay engaged. I I think a lot of those nuanced conversations, a lot of just the general team building and just the kind of small talk that can happen when you just pass through a lab and check on people and ask how their day is going. I think for me, that would be really challenging to maintain. And I would be very nervous that my personality would kind of force me to be too business almost virtually. Since I didn't really have to navigate virtual mentoring, I'm definitely eager to hear what you guys have to say about how you have. I come at this from a slightly different angle, I guess. And I think for me, um, at times, my fatigue and my illness, whatever, is so bad that I can't even get out of bed. (laughs) I know everyone's kind of like sick of the pandemic and everything else. But this world of Zoom has just been like really accommodating for a lot of people Um, that have these types of issues. And so it was really challenging for me during my PhD program, because again, even after I got sick, there's really not like a template when you have a disability, you're trying to navigate academia. That's why there's such a small percentage of people that have disabilities that are in academia, because it's still very demanding. And even after I got sick, people were kind of like, oh, that's great. You're better. Okay, get back in the lab. Like, let's get these projects done. And I'm like, oh, boy, like, let's slow down a little bit. So it was still very challenging to me because it's very fast paced and it's, you can't ever slow down. And so now having the opportunity to just click a button and having my mentor appear is just wonderful. Like, we meet on a biweekly basis. And I would say, like, probably... of those meetings I do from bed. And she's totally like, okay, like, this is what you need from me right now. And so for me, I'm a little sad that some of these virtual opportunities are going away, because it is a lot more challenging to navigate than when it's like, such a big to do to even get out of bed sometimes. And I, I think for us too, maybe it's because our relationship did start in the middle of pandemic. So this is what we're just used to now. But for us, we've been able to navigate it quite effectively. I think it's because we always start our meetings with just kind of 10 minutes of like, hey, let's catch up. How are you doing? We kind of commiserate over the fact that like, oh, yeah, you know, COVID's still a thing, you know, whatever. And then we move on. I actually have found it a little bit more effective just because it's I'm in a much better place being here, feeling energized and not having gone to campus and depleted a lot of my energy and things like that. Like here, I'm awake, I'm ready to go (laughs) and talk and chat and things like that. But this is a very extreme example. So I I can also appreciate that it would be difficult if your student isn't, you know, suffering from these types of things that that's also a big ask to continue the virtual relationship, but it's a good option. That's a good note for me. I'm going to try and remember at the beginning of meetings, I tend to just go straight to business. I'm just the fast paced person. <laughs> and, and I think it's really, it's a really good reminder. So thank you for that to just kind of slow down and check in and that can help in these needed virtual spaces um, to maintain that connection. Yeah, the virtual meetings were definitely challenging for me and my lab, especially because my lab's been up and running. <laughs> so I had like six graduate students and two postdocs. And all of a sudden we went from daily interactions in person, me like looking over the microscope to like Zoom, right? And so I think one of the helpful parts was that I had already established relationships with most of them ahead of time. And so it felt more comfortable going online because they knew who I was, which is not the same on Zoom. And what I did is I had to take more time, more space, right? Zoom was hard to talk, especially month two, month three, which seems so long ago. But when we thought this was going to end quickly or never end, right? meaning that half an hour meetings were now 45 minutes or an hour and me not cutting anybody off, just giving them again, the kind of the space, knowing that this was a new media. 
um, to be working through. Everybody loves being back. And when we were allowed to come back, I though gave people the option. You can sit in the office with me. You can sit in the hall, (laughs) right outside the office, or we can Zoom. And a lot of students now, even if it's just because they're not morning people, would rather Zoom from home with their coffee and then come to lab. And so I think that also adds this flexibility of kind of respecting people's space and time and they know how they best function. I prefer in person because I, (laughs) it's just my personality, kind of like the Anne, right? Like just want to get into it and get excited. But knowing that the students and, and the trainees trusting the scientists in my lab to make the best decision for themselves is, I think, what's really been helpful. But it was hard. And then it was hard swinging back after COVID because then everybody was afraid, right? So it's, I guess, the theme, just keeping that door open for what people feel comfortable with. And as a mentor, I adapt to each person and allow them to come in the space and in the time that they feel, you know, the most safe. Thank you all for sharing your wisdom today. And can I ask each of you for one last piece of parting advice? So I would say that it's important for mentees to learn that even though they are in this dynamic where somebody's kind of in this position of power over them and they're supposed to be learning from them, that there's still opportunities for mentees to mentor up at times. And there's still things that your mentors are going to need guidance on, particularly when there are things that you are the authority on, which is your mental, emotional, physical well-being. And so while we often look to them to advocate for us, sometimes we need to advocate for ourselves and just let them know really what we need from them and how they can be the best cheerleader for us. Um, so don't be afraid to to mentor up because it's needed. And that's how we keep growing and, and learning from each other. I think my piece of advice would be um, kind of to loop back around to Sarah's point of remembering that everyone in a mentee-mentor relationship is human. And if mistakes are made, um, it's important that hopefully there's a certain base level of trust where feedback can be given and, and relationships evolve and grow, you know, and being able to understand that and understand that your mentee is human, the mentor is human, and it's all about growth and communication, I think can make for really positive long-term mentor-mentee relationships. And I'll kind of jump right off the end where you left off, which is this idea of evolution. I think it's really important that mentees realize that you can have more than one mentor (laughs) and your scientific mentor might be really good for area A, B, and C in your life. And then finding another mentor, whether it's someone who's also a faculty member or a postdoc or another grad student, that these relationships can occur in many flavors and that they'll change over time. And that it's okay to tell your scientific mentor, for example, that you would like a change (laughs) and here's how you would like to evolve and, and to help them make that leap. And so kind of taking power, right? And and being your best advocate, I think, is the best way to get the ideal mentor relationship. And Marguerite, what's your advice? I hear a lot of this is requiring risk-taking, right? Like you, the mentee, have to be willing to take the risk that what you share with your mentor is going to be handled with care, um, whether or not they fumble the bag or they don't respond in the way that you want, that there has to be some risk there to say, okay, how did they respond? How do we get better? And also for the mentor to take a little bit of a risk to be willing to share a piece of themselves and also to make mistakes or to not get it right every single time. And I think we worry so much about, is this the right way or the wrong way? And not, is this a way that's going to help us grow? 
and figure it out and and adapt to each other's learning styles and work styles or whatever. And maybe I don't like, you know, having Zoom calls, but I'm I'm willing to make to make adjustments. And I do think a lot of that is risk taking. And sometimes we are risk averse as people, but that really is needed. And then you get into the swing of things where, okay, yeah, this actually does work and we can make it work. What about you, Lauren? Yeah. I mean, this has been such a great conversation. I think another theme that's really coming out is communication and how important that is to communicate your needs, um, to communicate what is working, what isn't working, um, and making sure that that foundation is really there. And that is just, you're just going to have to work on it, right? It's not going to be a point where it's done and it's easy. It's mentoring is a process that is going to have its ups and downs and, and that's okay. And you're always going to need a cheerleader. So (laughs) that will never die. Always need that. Amen. Marguerite, you made me think of one thing when you were talking about uh, mentors taking risks. And I think one thing that I've learned, and I've learned this as a mentee, and I think it's solidified as a mentor, is that it is important for mentors to be vulnerable a little bit with their mentees. And I think that's really a great way to demonstrate trust. And I know the ability to be vulnerable the ease of that is very different for different people, but I think finding your comfort level of vulnerability um, and expressing that to the people in your lab is really uh, beneficial in the long term and kind of ties into that idea of risk taking um, as a mentor. Definitely a two way street, right? To have trust, it has to go both ways. Yeah, there's actually research on this about reciprocal sharing, that it, it is um, a way to build trust. So for all you scientists out there, if you're feeling skeptical, um, you can go to the peer-reviewed literature and, and read more about it. That's all we have time for today on Building Up the Nerve. And this season, we're ending every episode with a reflection question. So this episode, we invite you to reflect on... Is there any support that you need from your mentors that you aren't receiving enough of? And how can you get that support either from existing or new mentors? Thank you to our guests this week for sharing their expertise. And thank you to MANDS Program Director, Dr. Bob Riddle, who composed our theme song and music. We'll see you next time for episode five, where we discuss transitioning out of a mentoring relationship. And you can find past episodes of this podcast and many more grant application resources on the web at nindsnih.gov. Follow us on Twitter at NINDSDiversity and at NINDSFunding. You can email us with questions at nindsnervepod at nih.gov. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.